0: Building Trust in Government is a monthly podcast sponsored by MITRE and its Center for Data Driven Policy, informing national policy with objective, nonpartisan insights.
1: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast series Building Trust in Government, a conversation about how leaders in government, industry, academia, and nonprofits can create outcomes through policy and partnerships. I'm Jim Cook, MITRE's Vice President for Strategic Engagement and Partnerships and the Executive Chair for MITRE's Center for Data-Driven Policy. Today's conversation is going to focus on how the federal government can drive more innovation both inside and outside government. My guest today is Josh Marcuse. Josh is with Google Cloud on the public sector side. Amongst his many roles on boards, panels, and advisory committees, Josh previously served as Executive Director for the Defense Innovation Board and a senior advisor on innovation policy in the office of the Secretary of Defense. Josh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. So let's just jump right in. There's a lot of focus on R&D and innovation right now in the federal government to deliver results to the public and build trust. At the same time, the federal government is trying to catalyze innovation to a greater extent to drive the economy and compete globally. In the race to lead on certain technologies like AI, quantum, and other tech, technology areas, do you believe we have the policy framework that's really innovation-friendly that's going to enable R and D and accelerate the adoption of innovative technologies?
0: You know, I would say we have certainly had some big successes in terms of thinking about lab to market, thinking about different kinds of incentives, starting to be more sophisticated, and thinking about what we do with government IP, but I think there's this underlying question about how policy and regulation is made that I think everyone that participates in government, whether they're in the executive branch, the congressional branch, and frankly, most citizens that experience firsthand as a user the finished product understands that there's this big gap between what government is capable of delivering and what we expect from, let's say, consumer products and services. We don't expect citizens, um, don't expect to have the same user experience when they're interacting with the government agency, like paying their taxes or getting their, um, you know, payments or anything else that they do um, when they're interacting with an app that they've just downloaded. I think that really leads us down a path of asking ourselves, what are the practices of the commercial sector that the government adopt that could help the government achieve similar outcomes? And uh, that experience for me over really a decade or more of public service really took on the flavor of trying to introduce agile, um, human-centered design, design thinking, and these kinds of techniques and frameworks into the way we were doing evidence-based policy decisions, the way we were trying to encourage making regulations, and, and, and most of all, way we were thinking about the new initiatives or campaigns or projects we would start. And, and the word that we always used to describe this was intrapreneurship. And that is the idea of taking the spirit of entrepreneurship that suffuses um, the startups that have really captured the popular imagination over the last decade and turn it inward to think about how to be entrepreneurial in the context of a very large, sometimes very bureaucratic organization and you get from entre to intra. And so what we really tried to do in DoD was to cultivate intrapreneurship and intrapreneurs and a culture of that. And we were constantly running headlong into policy and regulatory and cultural barriers to being entrepreneurial in government. And I think that gets to the heart of your question of like where we're lacking. We don't really have policy frameworks that encourage People to be uh, entrepreneurs inside their agencies. Do you have an example from your experience? I have. I have lots of examples. <laughs> I have lots of examples. So one of my favorite examples was um, my one of my first jobs in government was uh, in the office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. And the joke we told is, is that really nothing had really changed in OSD policy between. When I got there uh, in the wake of 9-11 uh, since you know, we had planned the Normandy invasion. So the only changes we went from you know typewriters to computers and we like added women into the workforce. But essentially the way we thought about writing policy was essentially the same as World War II. Hmm. Meanwhile, um, in the commercial world, decision making had undergone a revolution. Um, human-centered design and data science and evidence-based policy all these other ways of making decisions had completely changed the way people outside of government thought about what are my policy options, what are my alternatives? I mean, I mean, it's sort of a caricature, but it's really true that the atmospherics inside the room was very much very pyramidal senior leader, you know, very pyramidal management structure, a senior leader at the head of the table very smart people with a lot of expertise, a lot of experience would invent options on the fly. They would pitch them to the boss and then um, you know everyone was sort of trying to impress the boss and the boss was the ultimate decision maker and it was like, very centered around this notion of authority and experience. And we know that that kind of thinking doesn't create psychological safety, it doesn't create divergent views, it doesn't give people the ability to speak up or to offer criti- criticism. Um, And so we tried to turn that on its head and we started doing, you know, human-centered design techniques with sticky notes and whiteboards and all these other ways of thinking about problems uh, and trying to inject that into the early stages of the policy formulation process. But this was not for product design, this was for policy. And there was very few examples back at that time of using this toolkit pioneered at universities like Stanford and and also at MITRE and applying it to policymaking. It was always, um, it started with, you know, how do I make a better widget? You think of the historical examples of like Apple creating the mouse or the iPhone, these like consumer electronic devices. And then it moved into this era of experience design, thinking of how do we design experiences for customers? And then this was kind of, we felt this vanguard of thinking about how do I design a policy with the same degree of care and thought towards um, user experience that you would if you were designing an object that you would use? And so we would experiment with ideas like A-B testing a policy, which was very controversial. But if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. If you're faced with a set of alternatives and you can have test beds where you try out different policies simultaneously and record the evidence you're getting back and then see the results and then iterate um, that, that was crazy. Well, so
1: in, in your experience, um, in, in, and not just in DOD but federal government as a whole, there have been many innovation initiatives. Um, you've talked uh, as, as well, you've referenced examples or alluded to examples that you know of where there are pockets of innovation that have been occurring whether it's product or policy. Yeah, across I call, the federal by
0: government. the way, I call this the innovation archipelago. Yeah. It's like an island <laughs> chain of innovative right. organizations, right? but we're looking for the lost continent of innovation where we can bring it all together in one big landmass. Right.
1: Well, one of the big challenges that keeps coming up in the innovation space, as you well know, is this challenge of closing the gap or bridging the valley of death. That's right. And so with all of this work that's been done, um, do you have an example where you think that somebody has actually demonstrated some success in closing that gap and bridging that valley of death? And if you could just take a, a second and, and define the valley
0: of death for our listeners. Absolutely, so the valley of death, um, or uh, also crossing the chasm or um, the other sort of things, is, is this idea that we have a set of authorities, a set of tools, and. Usually, some considerable pots of money for prototyping, and then um, to get access to real scale, you know, access to warfighters to put things into production, to be able to access what DOD calls a program of record that goes from the you know millions of dollars to billions of dollars. Really, where the main weight of the industrial complex gets you, you're know, building your you know fighter planes and big systems. Um, to get into that space is extremely difficult. It takes many years, it requires special requirements, there's many processes. Um, there's often you know, big contract competitions that sometimes take years to award, there's usually protests. And so the rules and the norms and the ecosystem around getting the early prototypes is severed from the process that gives you the large scaled programs. and. That means that even if you are able to invent something extraordinary or build a prototype that works, that that solves a really important problem, it rarely makes it into production. Which means it doesn't really achieve the scale of impact that people want to have where they aspire to the mission, they don't really get to have that satisfaction of feeling like they've had as much impact on the mission. as as they'd like to, but it also means in terms of the economics of innovation, they also don't realize the rewards for their stock price or for their shareholders or their investors. And that difficulty of crossing that gap um, is what we refer to as the valley of death. Um, But I think there's really two sides of it. One is there's all these practical concerns about why it's hard. What we don't spend enough time talking about is the philosophical reasons for it the cultural underlying reasons for it. A lot of people treat that valley of death problem as saying, well, if I just had a more flexible authority or if I just had a more flexible pot of money or if I just had the right person or the right organization that would you know, bridge the chasm or bridge the gap, right? Or we sometimes talk about like Sherpas through the valley of death or scouts or guides, it would solve the problem. I don't think that it would. I think what we really are facing is that we are coming to grips with the fact that the systems and the institutions and the human capital pipelines that define the dominant culture of our large institutions, all of our federal agencies, they are optimized for execution. They are optimized for stability. They are optimized for risk reduction. And the innovation organizations in the island chain, right, these small pockets. Um, where things are being done differently, are, are only effective far much as they are countercultural organizations. They exist to defy the expectations of the larger organization. And so they are producing these prototypes because they're incentivized to be disruptive. But there's no one that's incentivized to adopt them. All of the big companies that are known for innovation all have created small, separate, isolated teams That are meant to do creative, new, and disruptive things because they're small scale and they have you know they're higher speed, lower drag, small teams, and they have a different culture. Until there's a theory of change of how you're going to morph one culture into the other, the valley of death is here to stay. Mm -hmm. Um, Where we've seen successes, and this is a question you asked, is when you have an organization that's designed to be a translator. My favorite example of this is the Defense Innovation Unit. They are they are beautiful. At how they've done this. And you know, they were criticized early on for not having more examples of these transitions, but that's just because we were in that very early long tail of the innovation adoption curve. And I think under Mike Brown's leadership in the last couple of years, you've seen they finally started to climb up the innovation adoption curve to this steeper part of the curve where they've gone from having, you know, let's say half a dozen um, uh, of, of these tra- transitions, where you go from having one of something a prototype into production where they would scale. Today, they have over 50. That, I think, is um, something that could be replicated not only elsewhere in DoD, but really could be replicated at other parts of the federal government where they don't really necessarily have a team dedicated to that. What we've seen is they're, they're putting sort of a flag uh, out in, in San Francisco and sending like two or three employees, and they're sort of creating a point of presence, but we don't see them really moving in the way DIU has done Um, And I think that would really serve more agencies well.
1: So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in, in terms of some specific recommendations. I'm Jim Cook, and you're listening to Building Trust in Government. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about how budget acquisition and performance management policies can help or hinder innovation within the federal government.
0: Policymakers are faced with turning workable ideas into actionable policies. MITRE's Center for Data-Driven Policy delivers objective, evidence-based, nonpartisan insights to government policymaking. We work in the public interest and serve as a bridge across government, industry, and academia. MITRE applies a whole-of-nation approach to our biggest challenges in national security, science and technology, cyber and domestic policy. At MITRE, our mission is solving problems for a safer world. Discover how at MITRE.org slash Policy
1: We're back now on Building Trust in Government. I'm Jim Cook with MITRE Center for Data-Driven Policy, along with Josh Marcuse from Google. Josh, before the break, you were talking about some real experiences and some successes with the Defense Innovation Unit. Given the work that this new commission on program planning and budget execution, or PPBE, for DOD is, is has, char- has been chartered to look at, what of those experiences do you believe would be of relevance or y- of use to that commission as they look at reforming the budget and program planning and execution process as an enabler for more innovation and delivering results?
0: Absolutely. So Jim, first, Let's, let's help your listeners understand what's at stake. Because when we talk about budget reform, planning and programming, you know, acronyms like PBBE. I think people think that this is uh, a sort of a mundane back office question where it's sort of a classic sort of administrative improvement. And there couldn't be more wrong. The PPBE commission is the most important defense reform discussion of my generation. And the reason for that is because we spent 40 years on acquisition reform, dating back to the 70s, because the theory of the case was, if we change the rules by which we buy stuff, we will start buying more of the right stuff. Maybe we'll buy it cheaper, maybe we'll buy it faster. And I think All of those acquisition reforms were necessary, but we really missed the boat in terms of what was going to get the outcome that we needed for this new era of great power competition defined by a different relationship between the government and technology. And what we missed was it doesn't really matter what the buying process is if the people that want to buy new things are broke. They don't have any money. And it doesn't really matter if you change the people or the culture or the buying rules or their budgets if the time to decide, the shot clock, if you will, on the decision takes seven years. What we understand is that the speed of innovation is accelerating. The speed of technological change is accelerating. The pace of events in the world feels to us like it's accelerating. But the way in which we make decisions about allocating resources is still defined by a system that was designed by Robert McNamara in the 1960s. It was the very best that General Electric had to offer in the 1960s. And we are, we are 75 years down the road and we don't make decisions in any aspect of our lives or our organizations the way that the Department of Defense plans for its budget. The budget takes two years to build, it is designed to be executed over five years, and the requirements process that's embedded into that resource allocation decision can also take five or seven years. When these contracts are ultimately awarded, it can take one or two years, then you need several years to build and scale the things. So what we're looking at is from the decision to say, we need a new system, that system showing up on the battlefield routinely takes 15 years. Moore's Law, which defines the rate at which we see these rapid advances in computing power um, in smaller and smaller sizes, those Moore's Law cycles are one and a half years. So if you think about putting out a five-year budget that takes two years to build, we're talking about three Moore's Law cycles and the time it takes for our government to decide how much money we should get and for what. So the reason that budget reform is so important for innovation for agencies like DIU and others is that if the Secretary of Defense and the President and the American people want us to adopt technolo- technology rapidly we have to have a cycle time of decision making that, that is at the same pace as the technology that we want to buy is coming out. Otherwise we're always going to be lagging and not just lagging behind the frontier but lagging behind our competitors like China and Russia. And so for the Defense Innovation Unit to be able to fulfill its mission and its purpose, they have to have budget agility. And that's true for the Navy and the Air Force and all of the services, the Space Force, all the rest. If the Space Force wants to take advantage of a new commercial space technology, they can't wait two years to put it in the budget and then wait a year to write a contract and then wait a year for it to be delivered. We've seen so many commercial space companies be born and die in the space of four years. So we have to think about it differently. for the budget commission the most important thing for them is to ask themselves the question that we started this talk with which is what are the new and different ways that they're going to source ideas about the future what is the problem they're going to solve and most importantly from a human-centered design perspective who is the user for whom they are designing and i think it's really important that they remember that the user they're designing for is not the comptroller it's not the budgeteers they're not trying to make a process for developing the budget that is easier for the budget operator. They need to be thinking about designing a process that is meant for optimizing America for geopolitical competition against a very formidable technological competitor. They need to be optimizing for the user, the warfighter, who wants to make sure that she or he has the stuff they need to survive on a very hostile battlefield. They need to make sure that they're designing a process for new companies, companies um, like like you know, all of the companies from the Silicon Valley and, and startup space, but also big new tech companies, AI first companies like Google, those that are operating at a global and a commercial scale, they also need to think through, how are we gonna make it so that the government is an attractive customer for these new entrants? That is the pacing, uh, that's the pace car for innovation. And that's why the budget commission is so important.
1: So in the minute we have left, what have you seen in terms of successes because everything that you've described, I think, is as relevant to a civilian sector agency, mm-hmm. SSA, Social Security Administration, the Internal Revenue Service, the V Department of Veterans Affairs. So what have you seen in terms of potential pockets of innovation with the appropriate flexibilities and authorities that has occurred outside of DOD that the commission might be interested in And how do you also believe the work that the commission is doing might translate to the rest of government?
0: Sure, so I would say the important thing for the commission and other places is I would look at all the places where we've had to do supplemental funding or had to solve a crisis. And the way our government performed um, to get the COVID vaccine out to American citizens is a great example of how our entire healthcare infrastructure and ecosystem um, sprung into action and responded to a crisis. And I think crises are moments where we have clarity about purpose and clarity about mission and an urgency to act. And I would like to design a budget process that has a lot of the same design principles as how we respond to a crisis. Because we need to always have that sense of urgency, that sense of purpose, and that cycle speed. And so I would look to organizations like FEMA or others that are crisis management organizations that build in a lot of budget flexibility and agility because they know they're gonna be responding to a disaster. They know they have to respond to a pandemic. So if we can make our steady state budget process look a little bit more like our crisis budget process, I think there's a lot of clues and insights into how we would be able to make decisions inside of one year instead of once every seven years. In terms of what the rest of the government can take away from it, you know, I think DOD is such a large share of total spending and has uh, so many great best practices that others have sought to adopt because of their culture and their heritage um, that if, the, if this commission can just solve this problem well for DOD, others will adopt the example. Uh, I think they need to be laser focused on trying to solve defense problems. Those problems are, are actually quite vast. And I, you know, I think if they can try to solve those issues for that one agency, I hope that it creates top cover for others that want to do courageous things, hard things. That they'll say, "Well, DoD was you know first in the door, but we can be fast followers too." That's that's great. Thank
1: you. So I'd like to thank our guest today, Josh Marcuse from Google Cloud. And I invite our listeners to join us each month. We have upcoming episodes on the federal workforce, customer experience, and the national defense strategy. I'm Jim Cook, and you're listening to Building Trust in Government, brought to you by MITRE's Center for Data-Driven Policy on Federal News
0: Network. Building Trust in Government is sponsored by MITRE and its Center for Data-Driven Policy, bringing evidence-based insights to government policymaking. Discover more at MITRE.org slash